I am beginning this morning a series through the book of Hebrews. The other day, actually it was about Christmas time, we got a gift certificate from some gracious couple in this church who shall remain unnamed, and they gave us a gift certificate to the Market Street Grill. So, we headed out to the Market Street Grill. Now, I'm a meat and taters kind of man. And I am an aqua vegan, I've told you that. So Market Street has a lot of seafood, and I was looking forward to getting a steak there. So we got there, and I heard they had good steaks. So we got there, and looking at the menu, I ordered a 12-ounce New York steak. Now, when I order steak, some of you are of a bit of a barbarous ilk, wherein you, in ordering a steak, will say, you know, sear it on this side. In fact, I met some unnamed person in the church the other day at Sam's Club, and they shared with me that this is how they like their steak. Throw it on about 10 seconds on one side, flip it on the other, serve it to you. Um, that's barbarian. You have a plate of blood that's left. The guy next to me did this with his steak. The lady picks up the, the plate, and it, it's functionally a bowl of blood, blood dripping from his mouth. He's a vampire eating at Market Street Grill. All right. So when I say I want a steak, I always, because invariably they undercook it, and I always say, I want it well done. And they'll say, okay, and I'll say, no, you don't understand. I want it black as coal. And then they go, okay, we get it now. This guy really wants it really well done. So I, did, I actually didn't go through the whole black as coal thing. I just said, and in fact, my wife coached me. This is the truth. She said, don't, don't say that. They'll cook it the way you want it done. They know what to do here. Okay. Acting erudite. I said, I want my steak well done. So... She came back, she brought my steak, and she made a mistake, though, and not so much in the cooking of the steak, but she brought me the wrong steak. Instead of a New York steak, she brought me a filet mignon <laughs> in my favor. Now, a well-done filet mignon, it, most of you don't like well-done steak, and the reason why is because it's, it's essentially uh, non-glorified beef jerky, right? <laughs> it's incredibly tough. It's dark, and it really, it's just an avenue to get sauce to your mouth is all it becomes, okay? That's why you don't like it, and so you like the, the tender juiciness of it. Now, here's the beauty. They did a phenomenal job. I mean, I'm telling you, this is an endorsement, Market Street Grill, filet mignon. They had this filet mignon, well done. I opened it up. If I see any pink, excuse me, no pink, and it was tender and juicy, even at well done. That's all. I mean, it was amazing, right? I liken the book of Hebrews analogously to kind of like a well-done filet mignon. And here's what I mean. When you pick up the book of Hebrews, there is some tough stuff in it. When you pick up the book of Hebrews, it's usually one that most people go, I've read pretty much everything else, but I kind of stay away from Hebrews. It's kind of zany. It's kind of weird. I can't bring it all together and make sense out of all of it. It is a hard book to understand. On the exterior, it's tough, but when you get inside the book of Hebrews, what you will find is it really becomes the core New Testament book for unpacking what God has attempted to unpack from Genesis to Revelation. And if you cannot properly understand the book of Hebrews, then you will miss some essential points of what God is saying in the totality of the Bible. It really is a linchpin. And it is filled with a wealth of application. Now, the challenge first is in comprehending it at one level, not that it's incredibly dense, 
But just grabbing hold of the meat of what it says, but the more difficult thing is applying it. It really is. It is a book that you cannot read and stay on the fence of your Christian experience. In fact, it was designed that way. It was designed to be a book that gets you off the fence. That's the very purpose of it. Some people don't realize that when they look at the book of Hebrews, you're looking at really, really probably the only New Testament book that is a sermon, essentially. Paul writes letters. He, he kind of preaches in some of his letters. But in this particular, the book of Hebrews, which Paul did not write, we don't know who wrote it, but I can tell you with a good amount of confidence, Paul did not write it. This book is a sermon, and you see this in the way it's structured. You see it in what's said. In fact, in chapter 13, don't turn there, verse 22, he'll call it my word of exhortation. If you were to flip over when that same phrase is used in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 15, you would find it's used as essentially a way of, of saying the word sermon. Okay, So he's written this sermon, whoever the writer is, so that it would be read aloud to probably congregations, plural, that have a, a similar makeup, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, so that it would exhort them for one specific thing with a big theological idea in mind. And here's what it is. The specific exhortation is, you have made a confession of Christ. Now, persevere and live out that confession. Put your life to what your lips are saying. Because the proof is in what is tasted, it's in what is seen, it's in what is tangible. We all can talk a great game, can't we? We all come into church and we can speak the lingo. And we can look at each other and shake each other's hand and glory to Jesus, land's sakes, he's been so good to me and gracious. And throw down a few thousand dollar theological words so everybody thinks, my goodness, this person is so together. They're so spiritual. Isn't it wonderful to be in their presence? Ah, be in their presence on Monday. They're probably a jerk, you know? I mean, we're all at one level or another like that. I'm going this week, during the week, I'll be back on Saturday to teach on the book of Hebrews up in Oregon and suffer for Jesus in a log cabin on the coast in Cannon Beach. It'll be very difficult. You'd be in prayer for me. Um, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it happen. I'm going to manage it. Um, listen, this book has some incredible, incredible truth for you. But it's not going to be easy. I don't mean just intellectually. That's not the issue. It's not going to be easy to soak in. I'm going to be just straight with you. It's going to stretch you and it's going to pull you because you can speak any way you want about Christianity and you can talk a great game. But at the end of the day, if your life is sending a message that's the exact opposite, what are we supposed to conclude? Right? Really. If, a, if it barks like a dog, it wags like a dog, it's not a cat, friend. It's a dog. Okay? And we do too much of this. I'm going to let you know this up front. We do too much of this stuff that happens. Someone prays a, quote, prayer in our little formulaic tract, and now we say, they're a Christian. I'm going to show this group up there a scene from the movie The Apostle. And in this scene, Billy Bob Thornton, the great theologian, he supposedly, quote, comes to Christ as he's this roughneck uh, guy driving a bulldozer, threatening to bulldoze over 
uh, Robert Duvall, the greatest American actor in the history of civilization. Anyway, if you've ever seen Open Range, you would agree with that. He comes to Christ, sort of, we think. He has this emotional experience, and the church is gathered around him, and they're singing over him, and, it, and it's this great repentance. And so I'm going to show this scene to them and ask them, in my opening session, is this man a Christian? Hmm. Did he come to Christ? Some of them, I'm, I know what's going to happen. Many of them are going to go, yes, he was converted to Jesus. Of course, they haven't seen a lot of Billy Bob's life. Haven't seen a lot of uh, even that character's development, right? But they assume because of a moment in time that they came to Christ. That is one of the great errors that the church makes. Okay? It starts, it does, and it begins with your confession of Christ. That's important, it's crucial, it's essential. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God's raised him from the dead, and you will be saved, Romans 10 tells us. But I can deceive people all the time with my words. All the time. And so what the author is doing throughout this book is he's essentially warning them. He has five main warning passages, and he warns them again and again and again with a bunch of theology in between, saying, if you've made this confession, I'm going to speak to you on the basis that you're telling the truth. This is what he does. On the basis that you're telling the truth, and I'm going to exhort you along those lines. And I'm going to say to you, if you're telling the truth, this is what your life should look like. Okay? So the encouragement is... Don't fall away, meaning not that you can lose your salvation. That's not what he's encouraging. It's, it's equivalent to if I were to set a, a cup of arsenic up here and I were to say to you, that's filled with, that water is filled with arsenic. There isn't one of you in this room, if you have any measure of sanity, that's going to go, <laughs> let's see. You're not going to kick it back. What's the point? The warning in itself is the point. The warning is what keeps you from doing it. See, part of God preserving you in your faith is His warnings to you, knowing full well that if you've genuinely believed, you're going to follow through. That's part of it. Okay? Now, as we come to this text, he is writing to people who are Jewish by their uh, ethnic background and by their religious background, and they have at least made some confession of Christ. So we call them, I would say they are Jewish, and then I put in parentheses Christians. Meaning, we don't know for sure, but he's operating on that assumption with them. Okay, So he writes this to them, and we know, by the way, it didn't, this letter didn't come with a little heading that says Hebrews. Okay, It didn't have that. That was something that was titled, it was titled Hebrews just out of the content of the letter. They read the letter and they saw, this is all about the Old Testament. This is all about Judaism and showing that Christ was the fulfillment of all that was spoken about in past time. And so it's a letter to the Hebrews vindicating the identity of Jesus. So, as I told you, the purpose of it is to warn people who have made a confession of faith to stay and to keep after it, and to keep living that out. The big theological idea I mentioned that kind of brings it all together is the supremacy of Jesus. And he's going to use that as a motif to show who Jesus is and how Jesus should be lived out, expressed in the, in the context, in the milieu of their daily experience. Okay? Look at the book with me. Hebrews chapter 1. The final word, 
the final word. Now, it's odd that we would begin with the final word as the first word, but essentially chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, is just a little uh, summary, if you will, up front. It's an introduction that has thematically pretty much everything that's in the letter, okay? Look with me, chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. He's saying, He spoke in past time, meaning back in the Old Testament, to our forefathers in a different kind of ways. You've read through the Old Testament. If you have, you, you know that to be true. At one point, he is manifesting himself. God is through a pillar of cloud and fire to Moses, right? At another time, Isaiah gets this incredible vision. Yet at another time, the prophet Nathan can come and speak to David. Or at another time, other prophets can go to various people groups, sometimes Jewish people groups, sometimes not, and relay God's message. God is speaking in the Old Testament. God has spoken. Now what this does to the readers is they get this and they go, oh, okay, wow. He, he isn't coming and saying, hey, here's something totally new. Here's a new thought. Let me introduce you to this Jesus character. He doesn't do that. What he does is he brings a connectedness to all of the truth in their past. The point is this. He's not saying that God is transitioning and changing into something that he never had thought about before, that you Jews had blown it, and so now we're going to send Christ. What he's saying is, this has been my plan all along. God spoke originally in the Old Testament through the prophets. And if we were to look, what would we see? Things like, behold. Look, a virgin will conceive, or a young woman will conceive and bear a son. And you'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. You'd see the same prophet just a couple of chapters later talking about this branch that will come out of David, this root out of Jesse, meaning a son of David, that was always a part of the Jewish messianic expectation that a Messiah would come in the line of of David, in the kingly, regal line of David. You could go to later in that same book to chapter 53, the book of Isaiah, and see this suffering servant that's described that would come, that would suffer for many, for the benefits of many, and that many would be washed, regenerated, cleaned, made new as a result of him. They are all anticipatory. Anticipatory of whom? And the author of Hebrews is saying, anticipatory of Jesus. And he resounds with all of the collective testimony of the New Testament. So it's a connection to the old, and he's saying, it's not that you Jewish folks had it all wrong. What I'm telling you is, not that Jesus does away with the Old Testament, but that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. What did Jesus himself say? I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill it because it all was a precursor to me. How was it a precursor? Sin needed to be satiated. It needed to be taken care of. It needed to be done away with, right? And so it happens in the Old Testament through the priests going in, offering sacrifices for the sins of the people. Jesus comes as the superior ultimate sacrifice. That, my friends, is exactly what Hebrews 7 through Hebrews 10 is all about. It's the central point of the sermon. Everything before builds up to it. Everything after it says, here's how you live it out. But chapter 7 through chapter 10 is the central argument. 
Jesus' sacrifice does away and nullifies the sacrifices of the Old Testament because he fulfills the purpose for which they were instituted. Now, look back at your text. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That's the way it was in past time. Now listen carefully, verse 2. But, contrastively, in these last days, and by the way, the last days don't speak necessarily chronologically, but it speaks theologically, saying, all of this was preparatory. Now, in the final time, in the consummation of Revelation, all this stuff is pointing to these days in which Jesus is revealed. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So it goes from speaking in the sense of speaking through the prophets to speaking ultimately in the Son. He is the final word. And all I'm doing is playing off of the title this morning. He's the final word, meaning there's nothing left to be said. There's nothing left that you can do to add to what Jesus Christ has brought you. There's nothing. There's not one-eighth of an inch you can add. There's not one centimeter you can add. There is nothing. You are totally at the mercy of God, but here's the good news. He's merciful. He's merciful. Aren't you glad? Last night, my daughter disobeyed us fairly severely. All right? It's not that it's a new thing, but... So, I, we, we said, here is your discipline. This is why we were in the car. It's always fun when your kids act up when you're out because you're kind of, what are you going to, what can you do, you know? Don't do that. We're dead a thousand times, right? <laughs> so we laid out our consequences. I came home and she looked at me as soon as we got in the door and she said, Daddy, would you have mercy on me? That's what she said. Would you be merciful to me? Remember, because it wasn't long ago in the context of discipline, I explained to her what mercy was. And so she said, would you, would you get, be merciful to me? And I said, I, you know, let me think about it. And she ran over to my wife and said, Daddy's thinking about whether he's going to punish me or be merciful to me. <laughs> well, I was merciful. It's hard not to. I mean, gracious, you know. And we introduced the whole mercy thing, you know. <laughs> Start acting like Jesus to my kids, you know. All right. I'm glad for mercy. I'm glad. Because it means that he's given me something there's really nothing I can add to. Uh, nothing at all. He's the final word, and it comes in the sun. But I want you just to notice something. We could easily kind of just kind of breeze by this, but twice it says, and has the verb spoken, with God as the subject. One time it names God, another as the pronoun. God speaks. The question is, do we listen? Or does he become background noise for the things that we deem more appropriate in life? Does he become background noise to the things that are more pressing to us, more urgent to us, ultimately just a higher priority? God speaking. came across this interesting illustration, and I think it sets this up well. David Lodge was a, was a playwright back in the uh, 1960s, and at that time, he was at one of his own plays. And it was November 22, 1963. 
He was in a playhouse watching one of his own creations being performed, and I'm reading the words of Mark Buchanan. There was a scene in the middle of the play where a character, according to the script and the demands of the plot, turns on a transistor radio and tunes into a local station. On this day, the theater was full. The actors were caught up in the drama of their performance, the scripted lines and choreographed uh, movements and contrived emotions. The audience was spellbound, pulled into the world, powerfully conjured up before them. And along comes this scene. The character takes the radio, flicks it on, a crackle and a hiss of static. He dials the tuner, a jumble of noise, voices surge and fade, music blares and then sputters, and then stark and urgent, a voice breaks through. Today in Dallas, Texas, President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed. The actor quickly switched off the radio, but it was too late. The reality of the real world had, with just a few plain words, burst in upon the closeted, self-created world of a play being staged, and the play was over, and here's the point. No one could go on the way that they were going on when the voice came and intersected their world. Because the shadow reality they had created for themselves came crumbling down the moment the stark harsh reality of the world crashed in. We create for ourselves our own shadow realities of our own existence. We create our own comfort zones, our own conveniences, and we move to the step of our own drummer. The question is, are we willing to change our stride when the voice of God comes in? Loud and clear, crisp, undaunted. That's the question really the author of Hebrews is going to ask in the big scale. He is the final word. Look at your text again. But in these last days, verse 2, he has spoken to us by his son. And now he is going to give a series of seven statements that will describe for us the identity of the son. Now, in Greek philosophy... And in some back in, in Judaism, the term or the word word was used to speak about a, the rational expression of reality. So much so that in the Gospel of John, John picks up the pen and begins his Gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he's using that as a metaphorical way of speaking about Christ. It becomes very evident, it becomes undeniable that that's who he's speaking about, as you look down through the rest of John chapter 1. He uses that to say that Jesus represents the rational expression in our world of God. Later he'll say, he, and we'll look at this in a moment, but he exegetes or he takes out of the Father and brings to bear those hidden realities on you and on me. If you've seen... Me, Jesus said in John chapter 14, you've seen the Father. He's saying, I'm the disclosure of the identity of God to you. So picking up on that same kind of an idea, here, God speaks through His Son. He gives revelation through His Son. The, the purposes of God held up in the person of the Son, disclosed to you and I through what He did, here for us, and what he is doing even now for us. Now, these seven statements, and so as we think about this, I emphasize the word word, 
the final word. Who is this word? Who is this one that is spoken of? Who is this individual who comes and gives to us from the hidden realities of the Father? We're going to look at seven different things. Follow with me. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Appointed heir of all things. Think about that. Jesus Christ is God the Son. Fully God, fully man, enfleshed in human form, as the person of the Son. He has been eternally in the office of the Son. As a Son, the text tells us through the New Testament, that as a Son, He is then an heir, meaning the same way that my parents will since I am an only child, if you've ever seen, uh, uh, what's it, Secondhand Lions? You ever seen that movie? Another Robert Duvall flick. You notice the theme going through this morning? But as Robert Duvall wows us again in Secondhand Lions, they adopt, these two guys kind of adopt this kid. And when they get to the end of the movie is the reading of the will. And what does the will say? You remember? The kid gets it all. The kid gets it all. I'm an only child. That's what happens. The kid gets it all. They told me one time at 10 years old, you're going to have a sibling. I cried and said, I don't want to share my Christmas presents with anyone. All right? I mean, you're an only child. You're inherently selfish and egocentric and narcissistic. That's who we are. All right? The kid gets it all. Jesus is appointed the royal heir of all things. The royal heir of all things. Now, I'm going to couple that with the next thing and share something with you. Look at the text. He is appointed the heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. He made the universe. You see this? We don't turn there. But you see this in John chapter 1, verse 3. You see it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 and 17. There are real themes that go Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, John 1. You could put them together and they really look, have some real similar themes in what they say. And they make the point that Jesus was the means by which God chose to create the world. He created the world through him. Now, if he's appointed the heir of all things, okay, meaning the storehouse is his, that is, the wealth of the created order is his, and if he is the one who fashioned the creation individually with all its uniquenesses, all its intricacies, if that's who he is, what does that mean for you? It means, you ready? Capitalistic Americans, independent, wave the flag, glory! It means he owns you. He owns you. That's what it means. That doesn't sit too well with my pioneer spirit out here. And God stands in heaven and goes, So? Doesn't matter. Listen, he owns you. But I'm doing my own gig over Yeah, I, I know. And guess what you're doing? You're screwing up the created order. But you, but you don't understand. I make my own decision. Okay. He still owns you. He could step in. He could take your breath away at any moment if he wanted to. <laughs> I mean, it's his call. It's his shot. But mercy comes to bear. Love. Grace. And he sustains you. Right? You'll see that in a minute, too. He's the sustainer. He owns you so that when I disobey him, when I walk outside of God's expressed corridor, when I choose to walk this direction rather than this direction, here's what I've done. 
I have displaced the cosmic order of things. That's not the way they were meant to be. I said to you last week in introducing our set of worship that when you see the psalmist speak about the rocks and the mountains and the rivers, how the rivers clap their hands for the Lord, this metaphorical speech, right? And the mountains resound with praises and the rocks cry out, this wonderful metaphor pointing to the fact that the creation's purpose is to praise the Creator. What does that imply for you and I? It means that when I don't, I'm not fulfilling my function as a created being. Now, let's take it one step further, okay? If that's the case, and I feel displaced in my life, and I feel as though things aren't coming and the ends aren't meeting, and there's not a center that's given to my life, what's the problem? I'm outside of God's expressed created purpose. What's the solution? Step back into the corridor. Live life underneath his blessing and obedience to him. He's the royal heir of all things, and he is the creator. Look back at your text. Through whom he made the universe, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. He is glorious. He's the radiance of God's glory. I want you to keep your fingers here. And I want you to turn back to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in your New Testament. And I want you to look in chapter 17. 17. John, going back to John 1 again, mentions that he says, we beheld his, Jesus' glory in verse 14 of chapter 1. And it was like the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, he says. Five verses before, in verse 9, John says that Jesus is the light which enlightens every man. The point is, he is glorious in the same way that I see the sun through its rays. The rays give to me something through heat, through vision. They give me a tangible expression of the reality of that body that exists 93 million miles away. Right? Now, Jesus, wanting to kind of show the disciples a little something, kind of unbuttons his shirt and shows them. I want to unbutton my shirt and show you my glory this morning, all right? All of you are relieved. My chest hair is really growing, but anyway. He shows them a window into his glory in Matthew chapter 17. Now, it often causes confusion because of the way he ends chapter 16. Look in chapter 16, verse 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. Then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. What is that a phrase referring to? Exactly what he mentioned earlier, the Father's glory. The consummation of revelation in Christ. Now, look at chapter 17 with that in mind. After six days, Jesus took with Him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain before them, by themselves. There he was, trans.
transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Something a little abnormal, all right? (laughs) This glorious light radiates from Christ, and there's Elijah and Moses having a chit-chat with Jesus. And so Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter gets whipped all the time because he says this, okay? Let me share with you. One, he really wants to do something, okay? He wants to commemorate the moment, all right? Look in verse 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And look at the last phrase. Listen to him. And notice that voice comes while Peter's still running his mouth. You know what's happening here? The kingdom's going to come. And Jesus says, guess what? It's already here. It's already coming. You're not going to taste death because I'm going to show you a measure of it right now in the here and now. And he shows them a bit of the glory of God that is his and his alone to show. And Peter says, <laughs> well, isn't that something? Let's build us some shacks. And while he's still running his mouth, God says, this is my son. Listen. And here's what happens in your Christian life that parallels this and mine, I'm ashamed to say. Is we head down a course and we respond to God with what we think is obedience and we are just doing, 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 doing. And Jesus wants me to do this. God wants me to do this. And I'm, and I'm working hard for the kingdom. And, and we haven't even stopped to listen. We haven't stopped to draw close to the glory of God as close as you can get and still stay alive and worship and let your soul be fed and let your perspective be realigned so that you don't go for the purpose of heaven hell-bent on your own agenda. And he says, listen, listen. What's the point of the fact that that Christ is glorious? It's this. He is worthy of worship, and he's worthy of you pausing in your life experience to absolutely come underneath his glory in such a way that you realign yourself. And then like Isaiah, who saw the glory of God afterwards, say, here am I, send me. Too many times we want to do rather than be first, and as a result, we do the wrong thing. We do the wrong thing. Who's directing your path? Your agenda or God? And His glory radiating through you. Flip back to Hebrews chapter 1. And let's continue on and glance at these last few quickly. Hebrews chapter 1. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation. By the way, that's the Greek word character, from which we get our English word character. He's the exact representation of his being or his essence or his substance. This is where John chapter 1 verse 18 is instructive for us. Jesus came 
and made, the text says, verse 18, the Father known. The Greek is the word, I've shared this with you before, it's the Greek word exegete, and I've shared it with you because it's huge, it's very important. It means to take out of something and make it known. So he took out of the hidden realities of God, made them known to us. He's the exact representation. If one of you borrowed a book from me, you would open up the first three pages in any book of mine, if I've had the time to do it, and it would have the Brian Hurlbut official seal in the bottom corner. The library of Brian F. Hurlbut, esteemed reverend scholar. Anyway, I've got a little doohickey thing that you push down, you know, and it makes this fancy seal and you look real official, okay, by doing it. But what, what is etched into the metal on the inside of that is exactly replicated on the piece of paper. Exactly. And this is what he's saying. The very character in all of its facets, in all its totality of who God is, is replicated in the Son so you and I can look and say, hmm, that's what God's like. That's what God's like. He's the exact representation of God for you and I. Precisely. Look at your text. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, meaning he's the guy who holds it all together. I mentioned to you a minute ago that if you reach a point in your life where you've stepped over here and you feel like there, there are things that aren't coming together, there are ends that just aren't meeting, and you feel a little discombobulated in life, kind of screwed up inside, the chances are you need to realign yourself to God's purposes and God's plan. And you need to trust the one who holds everything together. By saying he sustains everything, here's what that means. It means that as the creator, he infuses his creation with the, through his power to maintain its course. So the earth travels its orbit because he sustains uh, the rivers continue to flow because he sustains. The snow falls on the mountain and gives a desert community like Salt Lake at least a measure of its water because he sustains. Your life and your emotional equilibrium is sustained by him the same way that the natural course of events in life are sustained. The spiritual climate of your life is sustained by Him. And when you step outside that realm, you are in an area of unprotectedness. You're in an area uh, where no longer can God, no longer will God, let's put it that way, no longer will God in His sovereignty protect you. Because God chooses to bless lifestyles that are commensurate with what he has ordained. You see that all that, I mean, just look at the characters of the Bible and you'll see how that thing plays out, right? He sustains all things. So what that means for me is I need to step back my life in line with him. Now watch this. All these things have had to do with kind of large cosmic ideas. He's creator. He's appointed the heir of all things. He, he's the radiance of God's glory. He sustains all the created order. And then he comes to this, and it's interesting because his next to last statement is, and it's almost like it was all meant to set this up, and I say that because that's the way Hebrews works. 
after he had provided purification for sins. See, what is his real intent in all of it? Moving planets around, making sure rivers run, making sure mountains are fed with snow. Big, big natural responsibilities. And for some reason, as you sit as an individual in your seat, his passion was so great for your heart that he gave his son. See, the cosmic Christ, the cosmic creator, becomes your personal savior. That is unbelievable. That's astonishing, and that's what this is meant to make us do. Stop, pause, and go, everything up to this point has been cosmic, cosmic, natural world, all these huge properties, and now it's just about you and your heart and God. And God invades and provides purification for your sin. I'll come back to that in just a moment. And he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. And the last point being that he is enthroned in heaven, meaning he is exalted. Hebrew, or Philippians chapter 2 makes this point to us, that this one who became sin for us, this one who died on the cross, became obedient to death, Paul says, even death on a cross is exalted. And that's how Paul finishes his little hymn in Philippians chapter 2. At the right hand of the majesty in heaven, verse 4, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Two comments. In the book of Hebrews, you'll see this four times. In chapter 1, verse 4, here he does it. The end of chapter 2, he does it. Uh, he does it in chapter 5, verse 10, and he does it at the end of chapter 10. They are little previews of what's coming. He'll give a, a one or two verse preview of what the coming exposition is. Okay? He's going to spend chapter 1, verse 5, really through the end of chapter 2, saying Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, that may seem insignificant to you. He's going to bring some incredible things to bear that have application for our life through the process of it. But this is his preview. But notice what he says. He says that he has a name that is superior or better than theirs. In the ancient culture, a name actually meant something. Um, oftentimes, we name our kids... Um, I'm guilty of this. We, we name our kids, and we, we don't really think through uh, the meaning of the name as much as we like the way it sounds. It has a good ring to it, right? We like the name Bryn, and then we found out that in some circles it means white bosom. Well, okay, um, you know, what do you do with that, you know? I mean, but, you know, maybe we'll name her Grace. I don't, you know. But we went through with Bryn. Right? In the ancient culture, names really, really substantively mattered so much so that the name was intrinsically tied up into the substance of who that person was, and that's what he's saying. He has a name that's superior, and these readers fully understand what he means. He has the substance and essence of his being is superior to the substance and essence of the being of those angels. Now, he's just described him in these seven things. Who is this Jesus? Who is this final word? Give us some words about the word. And he gives them seven. And they culminate in that sixth one, the purification for sins. And here's the point. 
what you should take away from this message is that God has spoken in past time and then He's finally and ultimately spoken now. Why? Because you, amidst all the cosmic order of things, matter to Him. You matter. And we can't, really, honestly, I, I don't understand why. <laughs> I, I'm sure none of us do. But you do. You matter. So much so that really, even as the great Scottish preacher, poet George MacDonald makes the point to us, your heart becomes the central battleground of life. You matter. So the book of Hebrews is largely about reclaiming your heart and restoring you for the purpose for which you were made, the glory for which you were created, the worship for which you were designed. Focus towards Him in Him alone. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we come before You. Your grace is uh, is a great thing. The person of Your Son is astonishing. And this morning, um, here with us, there could be a number that have professed You, some that have not professed You, some that have professed You and may or may not possess You. And we, we are in different uh, stages to some degree. Yet you've come to claim our souls. And uh, we don't minimize the beauty and the, the glory of a profession of faith. And so, Father, it is my desire that if there's any here that have not come to you, that you would so draw them this morning and that you would be glorified in our midst that uh, we might confess you, that we might so desire to know you that you would become the focus of our very lives. As I close in prayer, I just want to say this to you. If you are here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ and had kind of that stake in the ground at the beginning of the trail, this is a morning you can do that. And I'm just going to pray a little prayer and you can, you can feel free to follow this, but just know it's, it's not a mantra that invokes God's presence, but it is if you believe that Christ came, died for your sin in your place so that you don't have to die ultimately a, a spiritual death, but spend eternity with Him in heaven. If you believe that, that He rose again, then you can have eternal life. But it is, uh, it's your stake in the ground. It's your confession that begins your journey. And it goes something like this. Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus to die in my place. And this morning is a time when I want to confess that I'm a sinner, that I have failed you, and that I need you. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my life and change me and help me to walk in your precepts by your design. So, Lord, we come to you now and we pray that you would guide us, direct us in all things. Be worshipped as we close in song in Jesus' name.